This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash right book. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Welcome to what may now be the permanent name of Just the Right Book Shorts, we have gotten lots of emails at podcast at rjjoya.com. And it seems like people are liking both the format and the name. So I'm going to say welcome to Just the Right Book Shorts. For each one of our episodes, I'm joined by Bill Goldstein, uh, who is a writer, a book coming out about Larry Kramer and is a book critic in writing and on air for NBC. And we always have so much fun picking out the books that we want to share with you. So welcome, Billy. Well, welcome to me. Thank you, Roxanne. You know, where I've <laughs> lost my train of thought. You're, I'm hearing you talk about this person. I say, oh, he sounds so interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I've been enjoying doing. Billy, so what are you reading and loving? Well, the book I just read, I loved is called Goodnight Irene by Luis Alberto Urea. And it is a World War II novel based on the life of his mother, a woman named Phyllis McLaughlin. In the novel, the character is named Irene Woodward. And it is a stunning novel about World War II. Uh, Irene and her friend Dot become what is sort of derisively known was in World War II as donut dollies. And they were not nurses. Uh, they they worked sort of as U, as mobile USO people in something called the Club Mobile that followed American troops through Europe after D-Day. And so Dot and Irene are in the middle of the war. I mean, they're making donuts and they're uh, taking care of the soldiers, being friendly to them, helping them. And yet they are facing all of the same battles. They're in the Battle of the Bulge. They're there when Buchenwald is, is liberated. They're with Patton's troops. It is an unbelievable book based, as I say, on Luis Alberto Urea's mother's life. Much of the records of the club mobiles were destroyed in a fire. And uh, some of this is based on his mother's diaries, and what's so touching about the book is not only how brutal a war these women are facing and how brave they are, but also how they they decide to leave their somewhat comfortable lives um, to take this chance 
in the war and how it transforms their lives, what they win. I mean, they there's some love and there you know, it's a complicated story. And then what they lose, what they what they realize uh, is going on and how it affects the rest of their lives. So I, I urge people to read this book because it is the most unusual World War II novel I've mm. ever read. It's it's beautifully written. It evokes these women's lives as well as the war. And I urge people not only to read the book, but to read the author's note that follows it for a few more details about the real story of Phyllis McLaughlin and also how he came to write this book. So the novel itself is stunning and would work without the author's note, but it's just it's just so beautiful to read those last few pages and not to ignore them as it's so easy to do. You know, Billy, I was I was very struck when I was reading a review and somewhere I came across a picture of his mother and their group. And, you know, it looked like a troop picture or a sorority, you know, that there was something convivial about it. And, uh, you know, from what I read of the review, her son got a whole different perspective on his mother that was sort of a life aside from the life she went on to live. Well, exactly. I mean, what you realize is how much of his mother's life he didn't know. And so he never really understood her in a certain way. Yeah. He wrote about her and. Some of it is based on fact and that lot had to be imagined, but she is a different woman in his eyes, I think, after writing the book or, you know, through the writing. Mm-hmm. Of the book. And I think it's it's what you often read about when people write memoirs of their family. I mean, is that they begin to understand people in a new way to let go of certain pain that that there may have been and to just see life through someone else's eyes as novelists often do. And, you know, most of us in families uh, find it very difficult to do. It's, it's a brutal book as a war novel and yet also so tender because of that level of understanding and ability to see through mm-hmm. uh, experience yeah. through someone else's eyes. So speaking, speaking of war, one of the poems by W.B. Yeats that is often quoted and referred to and and paraphrased or mutilatedly paraphrased, I don't know if mutilatedly is a word, is <laughs> slouching towards Bethlehem. And it was written in uh, 1919 on the eve of World War One, and was intended to paint a very distressed, dismal, view of the way in which the world was about to change, that there were things going on all over that were unsettling and troublesome. So Joan Didion stole that title to write her collection of essays that were published in 1968 and intended to cover the same kind of what she saw as troubling situation that was going on in particularly Haight-Ashbury, but in California in general and society in general. And I realized I've read these books by 
I, you know, I read The Year of Magical Thinking. I've read other essays. And I was reading an article where a writer, whose name I forget, referred to slouching towards Bethlehem as being her icon, her mm-hmm. her Mount Everest of right. what writing culturally ought to look like. And I thought, geez, I, I you know, I really ought to pick the damn book up. <laughs> and of course it was in the house. You know, it wasn't like I even had to go to R.J. Julius to <laughs> to get it. And I read it and I thought, A, I was surprised at how critical she was, because I think of her as having condoned a kind of a drug experimental Mm -hmm. culture. But she's quite critical and judgmental about what's going on in Haight-Ashbury in 1967 or 1966, I think it was. And I'll, I'll read you this little piece because... She's referring to that the press was sort of missing the story. And she wrote, of course, the activists, not those whose thinking had become rigid, but those whose approach to revolution was imaginatively anarchic, had long ago grasped the reality which looted the press, that we were seeing something important, the desperate attempt of a handful of pathetically unequipped children to create a community in a social vacuum. And it's almost, it's similar language that when you look at a review of Yeats's poem in the Paris Review then, talks about almost the same thing. Hmm. So it made me, A, it made me read the poem again, but I am so thrilled I picked this book up because it's just a reminder how, you know, we think of unrest as new. I don't right. mean we really do, but we sometimes become a little myopic and think, oh my God, this is the worst. This is horrible. This is like the world is falling apart. And then you read this poem from 1919 and you read this book from 1968 and you go, okay, hold on. Let's just assess what we're seeing and what does it mean? Well, I mean, that is amazingly uh, you've you've made me want to read Slouching uh, <laughs> Toward Bethlehem. I've read other of her books, uh, The Year of Magical Thinking, and also I've read several of her novels and also her essay collection, The White Album, but I've not read Slouching Toward Bethlehem. So obviously that is now part of my summer reading to come. So thank you. This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash writebook. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book.
Okay, so let's, Billy, because we love these books so much, we talked about them. Let's do each do one more book quickly, and then uh, there's something you want us to also talk about, which I'd like to get to. Well, one of the things we've been doing is telling people about books that are coming up that we've just read or are finishing. And a book that's coming out in in a few weeks from now, I mean, in mid-July, is Colson Whitehead's new novel called Crook Manifesto. And uh, Colson Whitehead, of course, has won two Pulitzer Prizes, and he is known for uh, some of his most serious writing. I mean, The Nickel Boys is a brutal uh, but beautiful book and uh, The Underground Railroad. But uh, his last book, Harlem Shuffle, and now this book, Crook Manifesto, are showing a very different side, a caperish Colson Whitehead. And that novel, Harlem Shuffle, was was a, a social comedy, a crime caper uh, set in Harlem in the 60s. It was and a blast. It, it was it, oh, Harlem so Shuffle you, was just a blast. And, and this is a sequel set in New York in the 70s. And it's a complicated story, I mean, for me to summarize, so I won't do that because, of course, any any hint of what's uh, to come might be seen as a spoiler. But the main character is back, and New York in the 70s is at its low point, and it makes the most of both the social comedy and also a portrait of New York as it's falling apart in the 70s. And a lot of social issues are are he addresses so seamlessly in the story. And so it's a three-part story. And one of the things I always, people always ask me, oh, well, if this is a sequel to Harlem Shuffle, should I have read Harlem Shuffle before? Or should I have, anytime there's a sort of series or even a loose series, I always say, just dive in wherever you want. And the the next book, if you go back and read the first one, is always, it's like a prequel. Well, now you find out what they were doing beforehand. And a lot of writers have written prequels. Uh, you know, they write a later book about an earlier period. So I don't think there's any problem reading things out of order. It's just as you, as you like it. And so if you haven't read Harlem Shuffle, just pick up Crook Manifesto, and I think you'll have a really good time. And then you'll probably want to read Harlem Shuffle. All right. Well, you made me one. I forgot that I don't have a copy of the galley yet. So speaking of comedy, I read Kiss Me in the Coral Lounge, Intimate Confessions from a Happy Marriage by Helen Ellis. And she was the writer of American Housewife. And she she just cracks me up. You know, I think of her. I don't know if this is good or bad. So I don't want anyone to take this wrong. But she feels like a modern Irma Bombeck. She comments like the first essay is about snoring, <laughs> you know, your husband snoring and has like funny things like admit it, you've kicked your husband, you know, <laughs> to try to get him to stop snoring. And then you pretend you're like deep asleep and you don't know what that was even. A, you, or she talks about like all the things that go wrong at weddings. And she talks about she's from Alabama and she talks about her mother thinking that the man she's talking to is a relative of the groom, the Swedish groom's family. So she's speaking to him in that way. We talk to people who we think don't speak English, you know, this sort of <laughs> louder voice, stupid. And then all of a sudden the man sort of graciously interrupts her. I forget her name, but he says, Jody, it's, it's like Eric, your cousin from Wazoo. <laughs> you know, not some Swedish stranger. So she just does this stuff that 
feels like we've all been in this circumstance, but we could never tell the story as well as she does. And she ends the last essay in the book is called Contract for a Happy Marriage. And it's both endearing and hilarious and probably something most of us would like to have signed with our spouse. (laughs) It's called Kiss Me in the Coral Lounge by Helen Ellis. And if you just want to have a good time and you could pick it up and put it down or I would highly recommend it. She is a very funny, I know from American Housewife, what a funny writer she is. So Yeah. So, Billy, one of the things you wisely thought we ought to bring up is the passing of a towering figure in the literary publishing world, uh, Bob Gottlieb or Robert Gottlieb. Uh, So share with us a little bit the significance of who he was. Well, Bob Gottlieb died last week at the age of 92, and he was for many years the head first of Simon & Schuster and then of Knopf, and then he became the editor of The New Yorker from 1987 to 1992, and then after that began to write his own books, and he wrote a wonderful biography of Greta Garbo, he wrote a book about Charles Dickens' children, but he shaped so much of the life of any reader over the last 60 years. I mean, so he was uh, the editor of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. And in all his obituaries, it told the story of how it originally started out as Catch-18. And then partly because Leon Uris was publishing a novel called Mila 18, they realized they had to change the title. And he had a brainstorm one night and called Joseph Heller in the morning and said, I have it. You know, we have to make it 22. 22 is a funnier number than 18 anyway. So, so he edited Joseph Heller, but probably most famously and certainly for the longest time, he was Robert Caro's editor on The Power Broker. And uh, they cut something like 350,000 words from that book so it could be published in one volume. And then he has been the editor or was the editor of all the volumes so far of the years of Lyndon Johnson, the four books Robert Caro has published about Lyndon Johnson. And so I think it's He's not necessarily a household name, but in so many ways, any household of books will have books that Robert Gottlieb made possible and edited and shaped. And the reason I'm thinking of mentioning him now is not only his death, but also that a few months ago, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen about a writer and one of the most unusual was released. It's called Turn Every Page, and it's about the relationship of Bob Gottlieb and Bob Caro over the almost 50 years since they began, uh, or I guess it was 50 years since they began editing The Power Broker. And I've seen lots of documentaries about writers. And this, as I say, is the most unusual. It's about their editing relationship. But you learn so much about how Robert Caro writes and then also what Bob Gottlieb saw as the editor's function and how an editor served writers and ought to work with them. He's the most astounding figure in it because I think so much less known than than Bob Caro. So I urge everyone first to read the New York Times obituary, the Washington Post obituary, the New Yorker obituary of Bob Gottlieb, but then to see Turn Every Page because it is, as I say, a revelatory documentary and so worth your 90 minutes. And uh, just a thrill to hear Bob Caro talk about the thrill of research and then also Bob Gottlieb talk about how an editor shapes a book. Well, 
thank you for that. He certainly, you know, his, you're right. There's no one in the book selling, publishing, writing world that hasn't come across him. And probably most readers who might not know who he is have certainly been the beneficiary of his editing. So you've been listening to Just the Right Book Shorts. I've been joined by Bill Goldstein. And I want to thank you for listening. A couple of notes. If you're listening to Just the Right Book Shorts and you're driving or you're running and don't want to interrupt your run, the books are listed in the show notes or you could go to rjjoya.com and click on podcasts. It shows all the books that Billy and I had talked about in this episode or any of the previous episodes. And again, any suggestions, any thoughts, any observations, please write to us at podcast at just the right book. Billy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.